This is Rare Bird Radio. I'm Carol E. Miller, author of Every Moment of a Fall, a memoir about recovery from trauma using the eye movement therapy EMDR. With me is Andy Weisskopf, a psychotherapist who specializes in EMDR. Andy's also the author of Glass Palace, a novel for middle grade readers. And he's my husband. Hi, Andy. Hi, Carolee Miller. (laughs) So can you start us off by telling us a little bit about EMDR, what it is, what it stands for? So uh, EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. It's a therapy that was developed by Francine Shapiro, a psychologist in the late 80s. Um, And it has been used for work with people with post-traumatic stress disorder uh, mostly, but now it's, uh, these days it's used for all kinds of situations. Um, What are the eye movements about? So it turns out, um, this is something that Dr. Shapiro discovered, that when our eyes are moving back and forth fast, that we tend to both relax a little bit and also become more focused on whatever we're thinking about. And that could be very useful in therapy uh, because things that are traumatic, um, people tend to not want to think about. Um, So if you have relaxation um, paired with thinking about something that you'd rather avoid, then people will tend to be willing to look longer at whatever's been upsetting. But on the other hand, um, the therapy itself works pretty quickly, doesn't it? I mean, well, it did in my case anyway. Uh, so that you don't have to linger as long in your sort of valley of the shadow of death. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's uh, something that I do tell my clients, is that they uh, will be needing to think about these bad experiences that they've been avoiding thinking about for long periods. Uh, But the good news about it is that they don't have to look at it long or as often as um, in other kinds of therapies. So it might take between one and five sessions to address something that has been stuck for a long time. Okay. Yeah. And in my case, it was a little longer. I had, I was addressing a, a plane crash that I was in with my family and survived, but there were also some other things that came out in the process of dealing with that initial trauma. So my first course of EMDR was 14 sessions. Um, But like you're saying, right, typically it it can go more quickly and and does go more quickly than that. Yeah, it really depends on uh, the number of traumas you've had and the context that the trauma uh, occurred in. So for people who have had a pretty straightforward decent life with the normal kinds of trials and tribulations, and then they might have a car accident when they are uh, 20 or 30, then you might be able to clear up the stress around car accidents. Sometimes people will develop from that a fear of driving, Uh, but you can, in maybe one or two sessions, you might be able to clear out a memory of an accident that's getting in the way of driving. But in the case where people have a lot of other challenges when growing up and a lot of um, not, not really so much the feeling of safety in their lives anyway, and then something happens like a car accident, then 
you get to work backwards to all of those situations that developed the, the context for being fearful when a car accident happens. Yeah, so that was my situation because I had a, a, a foundation of um, mm. lack of safety and uh-huh. ne- neglect and abuse and uh-huh. all those all those things kind of rolled into uh, into one. So, um, so the eye movement part of the of EMDR um, is has expanded a little bit. Yeah, initially, where when I was trained, I uh, used my hand waving in front of people's eyes and just guiding their uh, eyes back and forth, fast. And then they developed various ways of making the same thing happen, or it was discovered that the same thing will happen. If you uh, set a pitch going back and forth between people's ears, left, right, left, right. That's so, what I did. I used the tones primarily. And you're wearing headphones, yeah, right? Yeah, wearing headphones. And um, the other process they have is uh, these tappers, or um, sometimes they're called vibrating paddles, but that sounds a little punitive, that you hold in your fingertips. <laughs> and they buzz back and forth, left, right, left, right. So it's obviously this back and forth, this left-right movement, something about it, um, that creates some ability. I mean, the way that I understand it is that these traumatic memories are locked away pretty securely in the brain for whatever reason. Our brains keep them under lock and key, and um, this kind of brainwave pattern from left to right hemisphere allows access to those memories which we wouldn't otherwise have. Is that uh, a fair summary of what happens as far as you know? Uh, yeah, it, it, is, uh, it is what happens. Uh, the same thing also happens a little bit and there, uh, when, we, when we go for walks, for instance, because our feet are going left, right, left, right, and some, this is why some of us, a lot of us do our best thinking when we're walking. It helps us process things. Uh, So, and uh, there is a therapist, Laurel Parnell, who has built her, the way she does her work by tapping left, right, left, right on people's legs. And then people can go home and tap on their own legs and do some of that work themselves. So it's it's not a phenomenon that has to happen in the presence of a therapist. The thing that happens with a therapist is a focused conversation. So the therapist is very deliberate about, about saying, so let's find a starting point where these memories have been stuck and start working through them deliberately with the addition of the eye movements or the tappers or the tone going back and forth between your ears. Yeah, but we got to say that um, it's not a DIY kind of therapy. Like, you need to work with somebody who's been trained in the protocol and can direct you and guide you, um, and maybe that that person can give you some homework to do in between sessions, and that's when you can use the tapping to work on something. But it's not something that someone could just read about in a manual and then start doing to themselves. I think you're right about that. Um, and at the same time, there's nothing... Um, I don't believe there's anything... Uh, dangerous about moving your own eyes back and forth fast and seeing what happens. So, um, or taking a walk or tapping back and forth between your legs. Um, what you do is you discover that, uh, as in 
most things, we only get so far when we have the discussion in our own heads while we're working on any project. Um, and so when you go to see a therapist, the therapist is the outside voice that guides uh, in a structured way where the conversation goes. Yeah. 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 So um, can you say a little bit about how you use EMDR in your practice or um, why you like to use it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I do like, I love EMDR. EMDR I learned, um, you know, 10 years ago, and I've been using it primarily in my practice ever since. Part of the reason I like it is because it's uh, a form of narrative therapy uh, where you uh, pay attention to a person's life storyline and narrative and uh, look for the origins of a narrative that seems uh, not to serve the person. For instance, like I'm a failure or unlovable or unsafe uh, and change the narrative around. Yeah. So, And you get to see with EMDR, because it is a fairly quick therapy and causes quick changes, you get to see the change in people's narratives and the effect of changing the narrative um, happen you know, for the matter of weeks and months. You know, it's so interesting uh, hearing you say, put it in those terms, just makes me think about my very first EMDR session and my therapist asked me a question. She said, so tell me about what happened the day of the airplane crash. And I started in on my standard story. And by, you know, by that point, it was definitely my standard story. I had the points all aligned. I told it the same way every time. And she said, well, what happened earlier that day? And I, that really threw me for a loop. I didn't, you know, I had to stop and think about it. I didn't, and I, and I felt uncomfortable. I didn't want to back up and take into consideration, you know, things outside of this set narrative that I had created for myself and I had created it and it was serving me in a lot of unhealthy ways. It was, you know, supporting my belief that I didn't deserve to be alive and that's that's a pretty pretty serious negative belief I would say yeah you described that so well about how it takes somebody else saying let's look at this another way um, and even giving you that prompt of let's back up to a little bit earlier in the story because you start your story here at this point and when you started at this point you're guilty or you've done something wrong. And if you started earlier, perhaps the, the focus widens and you can see a little bit more of, uh, more, more context. Yeah. I, I mean, I was really struck by my own pretty fierce resistance to changing the story, you know, or to messing with the story in any way, because it was so entrenched, you know, the one that I had created for myself, the version I'd created for myself, I didn't, I didn't want to let that go. That was um, kind of a struggle. Mm -hmm. So um, I would not have been aware of that, had I not done the work in that context. So um, it's a good time to point out that you had also lots of preparation ahead of time before you went in to see your EMDR therapist of therapists who have been nudging you along the way for saying, perhaps this is not the healthiest way of viewing yourself. If, uh, um, and even if they were unable to figure out how to uh, free you from this view of yourself, they were 
just by holding that you deserve better, because um, that's what therapists do. Uh, you come to us, and we um, have the most positive view of mm. you, <laughs> and um, that rubs off. Yeah. So, so you had a lot of experience with good therapists who made you, uh, confused you perhaps by making you hopeful about there might be a better life yeah. for yourself, and then getting steered to the therapy that helps move it along even further. Yeah. So, yeah, I would only qualify that by saying I had a lot of good experience with one good therapist. Uh I mean, who I I had been seeing for about six months, and she had been trying to convince me to um, address the airplane crash, and I was trying to convince her that the airplane crash had nothing to do with my problems as as an almost 40-year-old adult and finally I started to come around to her her view and agreed to talk to her colleague uh, Jan who was an EMDR specialist so and this is really this is an interesting point for your particular case that um, that uh, a lot of people would assume that anybody who's been through an airplane crash that the crash would be the thing that would be upsetting and and um, and get in the way for pursuing happiness. Um, but in your case, right off the bat, you were able to fly, you said months after. Yeah. What did, where did you fly right after? Yeah, I flew, I mean, so I was 16 when the when my family's plane crashed. It was a small plane, and um, it wasn't my family's plane, but I was with my family in the plane. <laughs> um, and... Yeah, about six months later, I flew to Europe um, because I had registered for an exchange program through my school. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't fun to be on that plane for Mm -hmm. however many hours, eight hours, I guess it was from Boston to Paris. But it wasn't like I was climbing the walls or had to be sedated or had to be put in a straitjacket or anything. Yeah, that's very strange. I mean, you'd think that, uh, and you're very strange too. But that's, <laughs> but that's very strange because you'd think that, uh, that a plane crash that was a small plane where your sister died would be enough to put you off of planes for the rest of your life. Right. But, and where I was trapped underneath the 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 instrument panel and Uh you know they couldn't get me out for a long time so this is uh also why as we were saying before why why your therapy took longer with emdr therapy because it wasn't really so much about the crash itself it was the crash in the context of the family system that wasn't supporting um its members yes yeah yeah thinking about emdr as a narrative therapy or a kind of narrative therapy makes me want to ask you about the overlap between therapy and writing because you're you're both you do both can you talk about um how they inform each other yeah i see a a lot of a lot of overlap in the arc of the narrative in stories that i write and in the clients who I have and the work that we do together. Um, 
So I'm, I'm in a privileged position as a therapist, and uh, most therapists are in the same privileged position where we get to hear the intimate lives of lots of people. Uh, I used to work at Kaiser uh, Permanente, which is a HMO, and that's, oh, that's a whole other story. So part of what I got out of working at Kaiser was meeting a new client every single day and uh, getting to know them well. And uh, therapists get to know people in a way that uh, you would really only get to know intimate friends or close family members. So and I think for most people, they really only have you know, between one and five or six people like that in their lives that they get to know really well and to understand really what makes them tick and what they worry about and what their struggles are and what makes them happy. And um, I calculated like hundreds, 500 to 1,000 people. So that's what I've been privy to, the, what, what makes them tick and their narratives. You so, mean you've seen in the course of your work 500 to 1,000? Yeah, yes, seen. And also, I think, know them well enough to, uh, to understand their basic motivations in life. So that certainly sets... Uh, me up for being able to uh, create my own narratives and plot lines that are realistic, that ring true, that uh, people's motivations are interesting and clear. Uh, so I think it's really helped me that way. Do you, I mean, I'm thinking about your middle grade novel, Glass Palace. Um, it seems like so much of what you've just said about what you know about people is present in that. Um, I mean, it's a, it, it feels in a lot of ways like a story that a therapist would write because it's sensitive to the way the main character, well, all the characters really are, are hurting. And, um, is that a fair assessment of that? Would you say? Yeah, the um, Glass Palace is a, it's an intuitive work, and I don't say that as, as, uh, as an egotistical kind of thing to say, but uh, I, I came up with the plot line of it without really thinking a whole lot, and there's a lot of dreams in it that I just imagined, and there's conflicts in it that that just began that I wasn't sure what was, what was happening really while I was writing it. And there are also two stand-in therapists, not just one, but two. <laughs> there's an actual therapist. Who's a guidance counselor. Who's a guidance counselor. And then there's a priest who's acting as a therapist. Who's the other one? The, those are the two. Actually. Oh, the two. Yeah. Two stand-ins as therapists. So yeah, yeah one's an actual therapist and the other's uh, a helper. So, uh, so I get to use those folks' voices as my voice as a therapist. But the things that are going on with, uh, with uh, the main characters in the story, there's a grandfather and his granddaughter are the main characters, and the granddaughter has just suffered the loss of her parents in a car accident. And her initial response is, is typical, which is just being angry. Um, and lost, and the grandfather's response is mysterious. Instead of him just taking over her care, 
um, he struggles believing he's not worthy of taking over her care. So what makes him unworthy, not that I'll give that away, um, <laughs> is I didn't know when I started uh, writing that book. And um, so, but it's so obvious when you get to the end of it, it's so obvious, like, of course, that would be the thing that would have made him behave as he behaves and keep him stuck as he's stuck. So, so yes, yeah. these, these are characters who you who are based on um, people who you've seen in therapy. They're just based on the ways people behave and the ways people think. Yeah, that's a great point. There's only so many ways that we get in our own ways, and there's so only so many ways that we uh, are down on ourselves. There's just a few themes really in in people's lives, and so. Uh, so you could say it's an aggregate of the plot lines are aggregates of all the people that I saw or just that it's just a human condition. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a little bit about my process for how I, uh, my therapy informs my writing, but I'm curious, uh, could you talk a little bit about how you decided after you were done with this therapy and it had done what it had done, how you decided to put it into writing? Sure. Um, at first, I thought I would just write an article and get it published um, to sort of introduce EMDR. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't familiar with it at all before I did it, and I felt like there wasn't much written about it. Although I did read an essay by Pam, by the writer Pam Houston, that was incredibly helpful to me, um, where she talked about her a little bit about her experience in EMDR therapy but there really wasn't much out there so I just thought it would be great to try and get more people aware of this because it was so transformational for me it just changed everything mm -hmm. um, and then once I had written that I realized that there was a whole lot more to the story and that I was um, you know, it, it wasn't so much about writing an expository piece explaining what EMDR is that I wanted to write. It was more just my story of what happened and how I got into the incredibly depressed sort of state of not believing I deserved to be alive or experience life fully to having this you know, phenomenal turnaround where I was delighted once again to be alive. Um, and it, I just wanted to share that with other people for sure, but I also wanted to just give myself the opportunity to write that story, to tell that story. Um, and, you know, it was, it was hard and it was long, but it was also incredibly... Um, liberating for sure and it was also really informative I mean I feel like it was an extension of, of my EMDR therapy in a lot of ways mm -hmm. because the learning continued mm -hmm. so how long was it between when you stopped doing the therapy and when you're done all the way done with your book about I'm gonna say that it was about 10 years there were a lot of things that happened in between. Mm -hmm. uh, I 
I wrote in fits and starts, and I didn't start writing this as soon as the therapy was, as soon as I was done with the therapy. Uh, there were a few years where I thought about it, um, but yeah, it was it was a it was a good decade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. So a piece of that time, we worked on it together. Yes, we did. Yeah. So where did that, how did that collaboration work for you? That collaboration was awesome. (laughs) I mean, it was just the most perfect set of circumstances, really, because um, not only are you an EMDR specialist, but you're also a writer and you're an incredible editor and we were able to just I was able to feed you chapters and get your your input and but I think the thing that was the most influential and made the biggest difference really was when we when we when I had written the first draft all the way through and we sat down together and edited it. So how was it helpful to have the therapist point of view? Because I, I gathered that that was helpful. Yeah. Well, I mean, as you know, I was working from, from a couple of different sources. I had my journals that I had kept from the time that I was in therapy. And then I went back to my EMDR therapist and, um, recorded her reading, the notes from our sessions together and we talked about those notes. So I was, those were the sources that I was drawing from, but they were still incomplete. You know, I mean, it's, it's not like I was making a transcript of what happened in those sessions. Mm -hmm. I mean, had I done that, it, it, it wouldn't have made any sense to people Mm-hmm. reading it as a memoir mm-hmm. it needed to be crafted it needed to be made into a story yeah and now it is right published by Schaffner Press to be released May 10th 2016 yay yay you can hurry on down to your local independent bookstore and order a copy thanks Andy thank you Carol